Hi, this is Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, and you are listening to Pod Kiss with Ken and BJ. All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best, you got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be and with that familiar music you know you are listening to your podcast i'm ken mills and today i'm joined by gary schaller you know with that familiar music i'm actually listening to love theme from kiss there you, you go specific about it but Great. yes you are listening to podcast yes and i'm glad you are welcome today we have a fun show Let's talk about a few things that we want to bring to your attention as PodKiss listeners and Kiss Room listeners and anybody that's on our fee or or our new show, Podcast Rock City, that is part of our little <coughs> PodKiss network. Welcome aboard, guys. Good to have you. Yes. Matt Porter from the Kiss Room is doing something very cool. He put out a press release and a website. You can get to this website by going to thekissroom.com forward slash demos dot html and this is what you'll see. Kiss Army calling all the musicians. Here's the idea. I want you to write a demo for Kiss. Now keep in mind you're not actually, Matt's not going to present these to Kiss. This is just a fun thing for fans to do. This is no different than when we used to get back in the old days we used to put together tribute albums, you know, amongst the Kiss Army and stuff like that. So this is kind of this sort of thing. Have you ever had an idea for a song that Kiss could have recorded, Kiss should have recorded? Well, here's your chance to get your idea heard. Here are the guidelines. Number one, write a song as if you were writing a demo for Kiss. Number two, record it and send the finished MP3 to thekissroom at gmail.com. In your email... Include your name along with any other info about the song that you would like to share. And number four, we will play the submitted song during the Kissmas edition of The Kiss Room on Friday, December 11th. I got a question about this, though, okay? Yeah. Can it be a finished recording, like polished, you know, or does it have to sound like a demo? No, it it can be you with a tape recorder going... I think Kiss should sing a song like this. Or it can be as elaborate as you want it to make it, you know. Dude, don't steal my song. Yeah. I think Kiss should do a song <laughs> like this. Yeah, well, there you there, go. There goes that one. Yeah. <laughs> so if you are musically talented or just have an idea for a song, send it to Matt Porter, care of the Kiss Room. As usual, we will put all of the information in the show notes for this episode. I think this could be really cool if the Kiss this Army... Is, you know. Yeah, this is such a great idea, actually, because you know what I'm thinking about? How many, you know, I'm thinking about how many people listen to podcasts and, and Kiss Room and all these podcasts and Kiss who play instruments and are in bands or just record on their own. I, I bet a lot of them are so influenced by Kiss that you try not to write songs that just sound like Kiss ripoffs. I, I, I know I do. And this is the opportunity to do exactly the opposite. This is the opportunity to write something that does sound like Kiss and uh, make no uh, secret of it, right? Right. And it's, it's also a good way to get played on terrestrial radio and around the world via the internet when we do the live show on December 11th. So if you want to be heard, here's your chance. You know, I have a proposal and not the one I made to you last week. Yes, we I will talk. marry you. Okay. But, but I have a proposal. So you know how you're the podfather, and yes. rightly so. Okay, so I, I propose to make Matt Porter the mayor of KISS. And, and, and I say this because someone, I, I forget who it was, I apologize, on Facebook 
Matt posted, you know, one of a uh, hundred things he posts every day that's Kiss related, all of them are really good and funny mm-hmm. or informative or amazing shirt designs or, you know, you name it. And someone p- responded with something like, you know, Matt, you really do live and breathe this band. He does. Yeah. So I, I nominate, I hereby de- declare, decree, whatever it is, I nominate, I appoint Matt Porter to be the uh, official, unofficial mayor of Kiss. He's kind of like Mayor McKiss. You had Mayor McCheese, he's Mayor McKiss. Except he's, that he, he can't be beaten by the Grimace. Right. No, the Grimace will always fail. The trolls and the grimaces will always fail. Matt is kind of, we, we already call him, you know, you can play hooky with the Wookiee. Right. Matt is just the man, and we love him, and he will, of course, be back on the podcast soon. We also have something else we'd like to talk to you about. There's a new, cool, kiss-related book out, and the name of that book is Gene, Ace, Peter, and Paul, and this book is all about the 1978 Kiss solo albums. It's written by Julian Gill, and if you've read any of his other Kiss-related books, you know that it's going to be awesome. Gary, what do you think of this book? I'm I'm just watching the I'm literally watching to see when the mailman is going to come right now because my copy is on its way and I'm looking forward to just sitting down and reading this. I, it it looks like such an awesome book. I have a shelf right here next to my computer where I do all my podcast recording. The, basically, the entire shelf is Julian Gill books about Kiss. Um, I've enjoyed every single one of them, and this is such a this topic is such a it's so near and dear to my heart as a Kiss fan. Uh, my first Kiss record being the Gene Simmons solo album. I love those records, and I can't wait. I mean, nobody does it like Julian Gill. Right. You know, nobody nobody goes that in depth. Nobody gets the super nitty gritty information on you know anything and everything you could possibly want to know about how Kiss records are made. He is your go-to guy. These books are awesome. If you don't own a Kiss book by Julian Gill, go buy one. Right. And this book is now available. You can you can get the uh, soft cover and the uh, ebook, whichever your preference is. And we will have the link for that in our show notes as well. And I personally am thrilled to read about this because this is this is such an amazing time and an amazing event. And I, I don't think that I'm going to be surprising anyone when I say that we're going to have Julian on and discuss this book and this amazing time period 1978 the only band that was either crazy enough or had the balls big enough depend you know depending on who you talk to to actually release four solo albums from one band on the same day it had never been done in history before the beatles didn't do it the stones didn't do it the, you know nobody else could but kiss so dick but kiss as a matter of fact it surprises me that it's actually taken this long for someone to write a book about about it. You ever think that maybe because Kiss are so boastful as a band that things that are legitimately amazing accomplishments get overshadowed? Oh, absolutely. And I'm not talking even about like, oh, the makeup um, overshadows the music or the, the merchandising, you know, supersedes the, the, you know, whatever. But just something like this is truly unparalleled. Absolutely. Only the Melvins. Pull, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but they, <laughs> they were they were uh, imitating. So yeah, you know. Yeah. So so we look forward to that future episode, and I really encourage everybody to buy this book. And mm-hmm. again, that book is called Gene Ace Peter and Paul. Such a great name too. Yeah, sounds like a candy bar. 
or a religious group. You're, you know, that old Paul Lynn joke. And Gary, on today's show, I recently caught up with author Greg Renoff, who has a book coming out called Van Halen Rising. Now, a lot of KISS fans may wonder, well, why would I listen to an episode about a book called Van Halen Rising? Well, KISS plays a huge part in the Van Halen story. And we discussed that part of this fine book. And uh, I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff to be learned. Uh, BJ Cramp joined us as well, and it was it was a very good interview. So, And of course, with all the cool KISS content that you'll be getting, we also play some clips of Van Halen covering KISS, believe it or not. Gary, you heard one of these today, the cover of KISS doing All the Way. What did you think about that? You know, it's uh, it highlights some really amazing drumming, I think. That kind of galloping beat that he puts on there. You yeah. know, it's, it's a, just a different take from what we hear from Peter, and it really works for the song. And geez, Van Halen's solo, Eddie Van Halen's solo, it incorporates a lot of sort of, I don't know, the, the themes and flavors of what Ace did uh, for that song, but just a totally different vocabulary, and it's beautiful. Great, great version of uh, All the Way. Absolutely. Well, you will hear that as the show goes on, so look forward to that. You know, occasionally we do some kind of funny bits or, you know, stuff like that. There's one of my favorite things that we've ever done in this episode. If you like to giggle, you just may find yourself doing that. So It's brilliant. I, 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 it's amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing. we hope you enjoy it. So heads up, true believers. This is our Kiss Van Halen interview with the author of the awesome new Van Halen book, Excelsior. <laughs> Van Halen Rising. We'll be back on the other end of this cool ad of another show we think you should be listening to as well. Enjoy. Rock and roll and vinyl are meant to go together. <laughs> like drummers and strippers. <laughs> That's right. So maybe it's time to hop on down to your local record store and go digging for some lost gems on vinyl. And that's exactly what we do here at the Shabby Road Record Show. We pick selections from our own personal record collections, and then we discuss the songs, the artists, the albums, and the stories about the music that you may have never heard. And there's nothing more fun than listening to two knuckleheads spinning vinyl and talking music. So dive on into the five-star rated podcast, The Shabby Road Record Show. You can subscribe for free on iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher, where there's a new episode released every Tuesday. Also, you can find us on Facebook and on our website, ShabbyRoadRecordShow.com. With that familiar music, you are listening to your podcast. I'm Ken Mills, and I'm joined by BJ Cramp. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. Today, we are blessed to have the author of a book called Van Halen Rising. And some people may be scratching their head. Why are you having the author of a book called Van Halen Rising? On the podcast. Well, first off, it's a great book, and we encourage everyone who has an interest in hard rock, heavy metal, and Van Halen to check it out. But if you know Kiss, then you know that that time frame that is discussed in the book definitely deals with Mr. Gene Simmons and Kiss. During those times, Gene was the person who kind of found Van Halen, wouldn't you say, BJ? Well, I suppose that's debatable. <laughs> Is that one of those it depends on who you talk to kinds of things? Yeah, yeah, it seems that way. Well, today, joining us, the author of Van Halen Rising, Mr. Greg Renoff. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, I'm doing really, really well, and I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you guys and talk to your audience. Well, we're excited, and 
Welcome to the show, Greg. So, from what I understand, you're actually a fan of the Rock and or Roll podcast, the Podkiss, and the Kiss Room. Quite a bit, so you guys always make me chuckle, so this is great fun for me. What all do you listen to? Oh, I, I tend to listen to a lot of the uh, the album retrospectives, which are my favorites, like, you know, Crazy Nights, track by track. That's uh, uh-huh. that's the stuff I tend to really... I, I mean, I've listened to a lot of the uh, the podcasts over the last few years that you guys have done, but uh, those are the, my, my go-to. I uh, <laughs> I greatly enjoy that. Well, yeah, Crazy it, Nights, that's when he busted out the Rat Packer version of My Way. That was That was classic. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm a big fan. So this is fun. All right, is it okay if we put that in the show? Then I'm a big fan. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> hey, anytime we can get any cred, I'll take it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you can hey, put, this it, is you Greg can put it on the website. You know, oh, Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, says <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let me do an air check for you guys. This is Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, and you're listening to Rock and or Roll and the Podcast. Yeah. And the Kiss Room together. Yep. The <laughs> who's, the, who's the hilarious guys who set, puts up the videos, like, in his truck? He'll be driving, he'll be like, hey, guys, it's Paul Stanley. Who, who, who's that guy? That's uh, Chris Giordano. Oh, God. He is the funny. I, I mean, it's good. That shit is I, that cracks me up. I mean, all you guys do with the with the deep thoughts from Gene are funny too. But that one, like, yeah. I was like, well, you know, I had to watch it like a like a cat video like nine times every time. He did. He's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. Hi, this is Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, and you are listening to Pod Kiss with Ken and BJ. Back then. It had to be such an electric time because the music business was like at an insane pace. Whereas, unlike today, if a band puts out an album uh, three over a nine-year period, they're lucky. Whereas back then, you were chucking out maybe three a year, you know. And and that just kind of speaks to how different the music industry is back in 1977, 1976, 78 to 2015. There really almost is no music industry anymore. But I'd like you to talk about your book. First off, tell us a little bit about your book. Give us an overview, if you will. Yeah, so um, back in around 2009, I um, started to consider the possibility of trying to do some research into uh, Van Halen's early days. And uh, so I'm a historian by training, and uh, I was pretty frustrated that no one had really done a comprehensive look at their um, beginnings in L.A. And the more I dug around and thought about the fact that they really were they were gigging as a garage band, as a backyard party band, as early as 1970. Now, I mean, the Van Halen brothers, at least. Um, And then eventually Van Halen forms together in 1973 with David Lee Roth. And I realized that whole era from basically the very early 70s up through 1977-78, no one really knew very much about. And um, I thought that was a huge um, opportunity for me and also uh, something that really was taking away a little bit in my estimation from the legacy of the band. you guys know that there's been really good books obviously done by Ken Sharp on Kiss's uh-huh. early years. There's been um, great work done on Jimi Hendrix's efforts on the Chitlin circuit. And so I thought to myself, you know, as a Van Halen fan and as a rock historian, I really want to tell the story of the whole basic genesis of the band and their, their um, years of working together. And so um, set out to try to interview as many people as I could who were around back then in Pasadena. So as you might imagine, you sort of start off with the people who um, had Van Halen play their backyard parties. 
Uh, you wow. know, I talked to people who said, yeah, Van Halen played my birthday party in 1973, this type of situation. Um, eventually got to talk to um, club owners who hired Van Halen, girls who <laughs> were in wet t-shirt contests when Van Halen was on stage. God bless um, them. Their, yeah, their former manager, Marshall Burrell, great guy. Pete Angelus, who you guys may know, was one of Van Halen's most trusted employees for many years and worked closely with David Lee Roth during his, uh, his solo career. Ted Templeman, Don Landy, Michael Anthony, Jackie Fox of the Runaways. And so you kind of go down the line of people who are around, and there, there are more than that. And I eventually, uh, after years of working on this, was able to really put a book together that I think is going to uh, open a lot of eyes about how hard Van Halen worked to, to make it and really what went into creating the band that was able to unleash, in my estimation, one of the great rock debuts of all time in 1978 sort of came out of nowhere and shocked everyone you know but if you were around in LA and you were in Pasadena and you were a rock fan who went to clubs or went to parties you probably knew about Van Halen you probably knew that Eddie Van Halen was a absolutely phenomenal guitar player um, you knew that David Lee Roth for all of his maybe his limitations as a vocalist as we all, all know was an incredible front man and uh, was just an absolute magnet for for people people love to look at him love to watch him and uh you know, that's what was the whole thinking behind the book. Excellent. Yeah, he definitely had that charisma. It was amazing that the band found one another. How often did Kiss come up when you were doing the research for this book? It came up quite a bit. In part, one thing that many people listening to this podcast probably know is that Van Halen did a few Kiss songs as covers. They did uh, Rock and Roll All Night. I've heard they've done, they did All the Way, Firehouse. And so, uh, you know, Kiss was obviously one of the biggest bands in the world when Van Halen was still a, a unsigned band in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. So there was that aspect. Van Halen also incorporated pyro into their shows in the backyards and in clubs, uh, smoke pots, flash pots, these types of things. And so there was a little bit of that, that sense that, you know, Van Halen was taking some some cues from the big arena bands like Kiss that had that sort of theatrical angle to them. But then one of the things that became very interesting to me and probably is very interesting to you guys and your listeners as well is the... The whole issue of Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, and the whole 1976 encounter between Van Halen and those guys. And so once I started digging around into their whole Sunset Strip career, in other words, when Van Halen has graduated from playing Backyards in Pasadena to actually being a an act that would play at nightclubs like the Starwood, which was on Santa Monica Boulevard, and then Sunset Strip clubs like the Gazzari's, and then um, later the Whiskey, Gene Simmons and the rest of Kiss sort of loom large in this whole whole story. And when I talked to people like, as I mentioned, I talked to Kim Fowley, uh-huh. um, which was quite an experience. I talked to Jackie Fox and another gentleman named Hernando Courtright, who was very tight with Rodney Bigenheimer, who was a DJ in Los Angeles at the time and, and who knew Gene and Paul fairly well. When I talked to those individuals, you know, they were all able to kind of fill in the holes there about, about how Gene came to encounter Van Halen, how Paul as well, and then how that whole saga played out over the, the those weeks that followed that, that meeting. You know, going back to those early days of Van Halen, it seemed like the who's who of rock and roll would show up at those clubs. I, I know BJ and I are talking about this off air, but like the runaways were there and it, it seems like everybody seemed to want to see Van Halen. This was this was the up and coming band and I think you would have had to have been blind not to see it at the time. You know, it's interesting because there's no question that when people like, let's say, Marshall Burrell first sees, who later managed Rat and then managed Van Halen in 1977 and 78, first saw Van Halen, he's so blown away that he wants to get Ted Templeman on the phone 
um, down the road to get them to come see uh, Ted Templeman to come see them. And so Gene is blown away. Uh-huh. You know, at the time, uh, though, in 1976 and 77, what was really hot in L.A. at least on the local level in the clubs, which is you know different again from the national rock scene, is that the the um, the new wave and punk groups, which are just starting out, uh-huh. are starting to become increasingly popular. And so there's no question that people who had an eye for arena rock that you know that whole genre saw the talent in van halen and could see you know that the uh when i talked to ted templeman he you know as soon as he saw eddie van halen he goes this is this is i'm signing this band that's it he knew how amazing he was as a musician and what talent he had um but locally you know van halen was kind of the odd the odd man out in a lot of ways there were um you know got to remember the sex pistols debut has has hit in 1976, everyone's sticking safety pins into their ears and, and uh, <laughs> wearing rags on the streets. I mean, literally. So, you know, girls like uh, Belinda Carlisle, who later becomes a superstar with the, uh, with the Go-Go's, um, you know, she's, she's a punk girl. And uh-huh. so that scene was pretty big on the local level. So, again, I, w- I would make a big distinction between that and then sort of the larger rock scene where, of course, the Eagles are playing stadiums, you know, that, that type of thing where you had a, a much different um, kisses playing stadiums where you have a different scene but um, basically what had happened in, in London and New York where you had this this punk music or what it would be called new wave at the time really uh-huh. was was becoming more popular that had come to Los Angeles and as you and your listeners probably know LA never became the type of punk scene like London and New York did but nonetheless that was what was happening in the club so Van Halen was a little bit you know a little bit odd out in that situation here's Van Halen covering all the way from 1975. Push me 
And you know, it had to be weird to be a member of KISS thinking, well, we've we've went to the extreme, we've we've you know, our band member spits blood and and we're like the weirdest people on the planet Earth. Now this guy's walking around with a big safety pin stuck through his cheek. <laughs> that just had to be a weird thing, you know. So tell us about those crazy nights where KISS showed up to see Van Halen. Could you tell us where this happened? the famous location? Sure, yeah. So I kind of put this together by talking to Hernando Courtright, as I mentioned, who was tight with the Runaways and tight with Rodney, Kim Fowley, and then Jackie Fox, and then from what um, Gene and Paul have said over the years in their books, which we should talk about as well. So Uh my understanding is that Gene shows up in Los Angeles in the fall of 1976, and he's living at the Sunset, or he's staying at the Sunset Marquee, which was kind of this funky, it's now like a super elite hotel um, in Hollywood, but it was kind of like a funky place where musicians would stay. And he starts putting the word out to people that he bumps into and knows um, on the scene that he's looking to sign a band. He wants to basically manage or produce. I was never quite sure exactly what the distinction there was, but he wanted to basically find and shepherd a band to start him. And so if you think about this and sort of the history of rock, one thing that Kim Fowley said to me, uh, the late Kim Fowley, was that, uh, well, you know, if I wish I could imitate his voice, I won't try. But he he, uh, he was quite a quite a person to talk to. But he said the Beatles had Apple. Why can't Kiss have you know a label of its own? Which you know if you think about it, that's that's exactly the the parallel there. Um, yeah, absolutely. So in bumping into people like Rodney Bingenheimer, talking to Rodney, and then um, interestingly enough, Lita and Jackie Fox, who were in the Runaways at the time, were both huge Kiss fans and actually knew those guys from just kind of working their way to meet Gene and Paul. Uh, Jackie told me some funny stories, which I'll, I'll, I'll leave out for the sake of brevity here. Um, and they're all talking to Gene and Paul, and, and Gene's saying, Which, what are the good bands around? And Gene hears from Jackie, from Lita, and from Rodney, Van Halen. Now, interestingly enough, another band that actually Jackie thought that Gene might like better is a band called The Boys, which was a band that included Mick Brown and George Lynch, later of Dokken. Uh-huh. And so... The boys and Van Halen were sort of in that same sort of hard rock style, although Jackie's thought, just knowing the bands, that she thought Gene might like the boys better. She said the boys were a little bit more commercial in how they, they um, in their songs, and that might be more appealing to Gene. So my understanding is that Gene and Paul go to a club called Gazzari's, which was a club on the Sunset Strip down the street from the Whiskey but at, the, at that club, it was almost all cover songs. Uh-huh. In other words, bands didn't play original music there. You didn't go in there to see you know, some band play um, you know, 10 new songs. They just played covers. And so it was around Halloween 1976. It wasn't quite Halloween night, but it was around Halloween. Lots of the kids were in Kiss makeup. Um, and the boys played were, were playing there. 
Van Halen was not playing there. The boys were playing there and, and did um, a Kiss song. I can't remember which one they, they did. After the show, Gene and Paul come up to them in, without their makeup and say, you guys are good. We want to come back and see you. We're, you know, and Gene saying, I want to start a record label. Gene and Paul were with some guys from maybe from um, Casablanca, from what I understand. And so it was this little entourage. And, you know, at first they didn't believe it. But then when Gene and Paul whipped out the Casablanca business cards or whatever they gave them and sort of like they looked at them and realized it was Kiss. So the guys from the boys say, oh, OK, um, well, next time we're playing is at the Starwood with this band called Van Halen next week. And so that's the sort of the infamous, the infamous night. So, you know, Gene and Paul want to check them out again, or at least Gene does want to check out the boys again. So he's told, go, you know, I will be playing at the Starwood. And then, of course, Gene remembers, oh, yeah, Van Halen. Rodney's been talking about Van Halen. Lita, Jackie have all mentioned Van Halen. And so they that's the uh, going to be the night where they see Van Halen. Wow. So this is great because in Gene's book, so he puts this in 1977 incorrectly, as I guess, and uh, and he says he went with BB Buell. So you said that boys show was on Halloween '76, you think? Yeah, it was. It was again. It was not on Halloween night. It was that week okay. around Halloween. So I actually have the ad somewhere. I'm gonna I'm gonna roll all the stuff out on my website. I've just launched. I have a lot of these little clippings and things like that. But yeah, there's a little. It, it was a Halloween party, but it was not on on Halloween night. It was sort of like you know the owner of the Gazaris was like, let's make all week Halloween. It was like. Halloween party on a Wednesday, and maybe um, Halloween fell on like the, fr- the Saturday or the Friday. I can't remember. So it, I, yeah. I, I looked up um, when Liv Tyler was born. So Liv Tyler was born July 1st of 77, which would mean that B.B. Buell became pregnant with Liv Tyler October, November of 76. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time when Gene is, uh, sees, supposedly sees Van Halen with her. Uh, obviously, Gene probably maybe even went to the Starwood with B.B. Buell at some point, but That's, it seems highly unlikely that it was the night he saw Van Halen. Well, I, I don't know that for sure. I've been told that she was there. I mean, people's okay. memories are, are flawed. Um, right. You know, obviously, I, I don't, you don't have, we don't have uh, video evidence to go back and recreate their every step, but that, that I was told that she was, uh, she was along. She may not have been to Gazari's, but I was there, all told that she was there at the Starwood, um, mm. which would have been, again, Again, this is the fall of 1976. I, I hate to say this to people because I know it's going to be shocking, but Gene is wrong about saying <gasps> 1977. I know Gene never makes mistakes, but he's incorrect. It's 1976. It's October, November 1976. Yeah, and it, so in Gene's book, he makes no mention of Paul Stanley even being involved in this. Then when, you, when we get Paul's book, according to Paul, Lita Ford took him to see Van Halen first, and he thought they were so great that the next night he told Gene, you have to come see this band that I saw last night. Mm -hmm. And then Paul's story is that Gene basically sneaks backstage and signs Van Halen, you know, behind Paul's back. (laughs) And Paul, in his book, he seems really angry about this still. What does he say? It was funny because I always thought of Gene as the one member of the band I could count on, and yet he still did secretive things like that. (laughs) What do you think about Paul's version from Um, his book? here I'll start off by saying this one of the interesting things that I gathered from my conversation with Jackie Fox who's um, you know Harvard trained lawyer she's a very very smart really she's great a great lady to talk to I really enjoyed talking to her was and that she was the drummer in the runaways right the bassist oh bassist okay right so she she has said that you know she is obviously no longer famous in that sort of way that Lita's famous or that Paul's famous or Gene's famous but she has, has indicated that uh, it's been interesting the way the story has been rewritten 
different times. Everyone wants to sort of put themselves there. And she says, I always get written out of the story, even mm-hmm. though Lita and I were the two members of the Runaways who were into hard rock. And we were the ones who used to have drinks with Paul and Gene. So another, Lita and, and uh, Jackie used to go to the Sunset Marquee and drink vodka drinks with, well, maybe not with Gene since Gene doesn't drink, but with Paul and Gene by the pool. And they would, you know, bullshit with them about about whatever was going on. And that's when they started talking about Van Halen and the boys. So getting back to Paul, right? At the end, I, I don't, I was never told, right, that Paul was the the ringleader in all this. I was always told that Gene was the ringleader. Now, I was told by Michael White, who's the lead singer of the bull, was the lead singer of the boys, that Gene and Paul both went to Gazzari's. Uh-huh. And so I believe that they were both there together for seeing the boys and then later at the Starwood when they saw the boys and Van Halen and both and Gene realized that he wanted to sign or, or manage Van Halen. Right. And it's funny that Paul seems to want to uh, at the same time he wants to take credit sort of for finding Van Halen. He also takes credit for turning them down. He also yeah. th- talks about how it was him and Bill Coin all alone in Bill Coin's office listening to the, the, the demo that Gene brought them. And then saying no thanks. <laughs> well, the other thing that Paul that Paul says that is always struck me. There was a there's a quote from him somewhere. It might have been in one of um, Niels Lozauer's great photo Van Halen books, where he talks about when I first saw Eddie Van Halen with his striped guitar. You know, I knew he was a star. And, and uh, Eddie Van Halen didn't stripe his guitar until 1977. Oh. So, gee, uh, so Paul's memory is is failing him on that essence. Boy, I'm I'm really burning all my bridges on this. I, ho- I hope you guys don't you know don't mind me calling on you to. PayPal me some legal fees when Gene and Paul turn around and <laughs> unleash their their mighty law firm against me for my slanderous words about them. Well, well, no, you could probably prove the timeline that the guitar Paul says he saw didn't exist at the time he <laughs> says he saw it. So, <laughs> well, I lo- I love the idea that Kiss. It seems obvious that Kiss were thinking about having their own record label, like the Beatles, like the Rolling Stones, and. To imagine that they could have launched that label with Van Halen is, and they missed the opportunity is pretty insane because it could, it would really have changed history, as we call it, if they had launched their own label with Van Halen because it would have been so massive. Mm-hmm. And and to Gene's credit, um, I, I never had the opportunity to talk to Gene about this, but as uh, I think it's um, Chuck Klosterman says that uh, Gene has only told the story approximately 2,000 times, so I had plenty of ways to get the story from uh, Gene's <laughs> point of view, is that uh, Klosterman's hilarious. Um, love that guy. Um, that, uh, you know, that basically that Gene all along, from the, to the very end, and I, which I believe is true, never lost confidence in the fact that Van Halen was going to be a big band one day. And so to his credit, even when other people in the organization were telling him, this is terrible... Uh, whatever they were saying, they didn't like this and that about Van Halen. He, he never, he never wavered. But he did want to change their name to Daddy Longlegs. <laughs> right, right. Well, the other story I've heard, which you may remember from some of his interviews, is that he, when he was told by Rodney or Jackie, whoever first told him, I think Rodney probably may have been the first person to mention the band name to him, was that they, he said, "Oh yeah, Van Halen," and uh, he thought the name was Van Heusen. He said, "What? They named themselves <laughs> after a shirt." Van Heusen? He's like, no, they're like, no, Van Halen. And then Gene hated that name, hated the name. Well, and then one more version of this story is from David Lee Roth's book, um, Crazy from the Heat, where he also puts it in 1977. He talks about the band having a big meeting with Bill LaCoin in his Madison Avenue office. And he says, uh, quote, we sat in front of his mahogany desk and he had his shoes polished by a little Italian man while he spoke to us. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that's probably, 
I do. I, I know that they did meet without coin in his office because Michael Anthony told me that when I interviewed Michael Anthony. So I believe that that actually did happen. I you know the shoe polishing. I, I don't know. Um, the other thing I will say about David Lee Ross book. I'm look. I'm a historian, and I, I um, by training, and I really have tried my absolute best to get everything right that I can in the book. And I really, you know, trying to cross-reference interviews, go back to newspaper articles to put things together. Um, God bless David Lee Roth. He's an American icon. He also, in his book, Crazy from the Heat, calls the bass player who was in the band before Michael Anthony for some, you know, a year David Lee Roth was in the band. He calls him Mike Stone in the book when his name is Mark Stone. Uh. So <laughs> I, I, I dare say that the book was not fact-checked very carefully. I was reading a little bit about the Gene Simmons demo and particularly the Running with the Devil track that Van Halen did. Van Halen included this song on a demo that Gene Simmons produced for them in 1977. After seeing them in concert, Simmons flew the band to New York, bought them clothes, and set up a recording session. They didn't get a record deal out of it, but gained valuable experience. As a matter of fact, Gene Simmons claims he had the idea for the car horns at the beginning. He had the band do this on the 1977 House of Pain demo he produced for them. So I'm going to play some of that right now. Do we know anything about these recording sessions, Greg? Uh, we know a lot. Here's what happened, the best I have been able to put together, and I think is, is correct. Gene and Paul, the Runaways, Lita and, and Jackie, Hernando Courtright, who was with them, um, Rodney, all are at, at the Starwood. They see Van Halen, and they see the boys, and the boys don't play very well, but Gene 
sees something special in Van Halen. By all accounts, they had an incredible set. They just were really on that night. They go backstage. I will tell you one funny anecdote, which is in the book, is that uh, when Gene came backstage and was introduced, that uh, Alex, who was a bit of a, um, had kind of a tough guy persona back back then, and I mean that not as a way to cut him down. I mean, he was a, a tough guy. He's, if you ever look at him compared to his brother, he's built much more like a like a lumberjack than his, his brother, uh, who's very, very small. And so, you know, Gene said something like, well, I'm just just thought I should come down and see you guys. Apparently, Alex chugged a beer down and put it down on the table and said, well, that just makes sense considering we went to see you guys at the forum recently or something like that. And the people in the room were kind of like, oh, shit. Like, that's not what, what, the, what are you doing? Um, but apparently Gene sort of shrugged it off and then started doing his, um, his marketing um, approach with those guys about, about all that. The next morning, he takes them into Village Recorder Studios in Los Angeles and they start working up a demo. Gene goes through their songs, they bring him, uh, I've never been able to figure out if they brought the actual car horns and they brought a tape of the car horns. They, they show Gene all this stuff, all the songs, Running With The Devil, House Of Pain, the other songs on the demo. Gene works up the demo at Village Recorder. He then gives Alcoin a call and says, I found this band. Um, and you guys may know how Alcoin reacted, which was um, with less than great enthusiasm. But eventually Alcoin says, okay, fuck it, bring, bring them to New York. You wanna bring them to New York, bring them to New York. Brings them to New York. Then they go into Electric Lady. Um, and they, this is to finish off the demo. So the demo, there were already basic tracks and maybe some overdubs. I, I don't think, I don't actually don't think any overdubs were done in Los Angeles. They go into the studio and in recording them, Eddie starts overdubbing, which he does not like to do. After the demo is completed now or, or near complete, Gene calls on a engineer to help him. Do you guys want to consider who he might have called at Electric Lady, who had worked with him before? Eddie Kramer. Eddie Kramer. And up, uh, he brought Dave Whitman in. Okay. So I talked to, talked to Dave Whitman, and Dave Whitman said that Gene basically plopped these songs in front of him, and he mixed some of the songs. What I took that to mean is that some of the songs had been kind of finished in Los Angeles. Whatever had uh, overdubs put on them, like House of Pain, for example, had overdubs put on, Running with the Devil, Whitman mixed these. And Whitman told me that he remembers loving Running with the Devil and thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be a big, huge rock hit. And so now the demo in as finished form as it was going to be, I mean as finished as possible because those Kiss was getting ready to go on the road, as you guys know. And so this is November now, and Gene and, and uh, those guys have commitments, and so Gene sort of finishes it the best he can. Then you have the, we have the demo tape, which is done, and then, as you guys know, presented to Alcoin. There's also a opportunity that Van Halen has to play live for Alcoin at SIR Studios in New York. And so all that transpires before Alcoin makes his fateful decision. Uh, so they met with the coin in his office and also a coin went and saw them play live at SIR. Right. So before they met with Alcoin at his Madison Avenue office, what ended up happening was that Gene invited Van Halen to come watch them rehearse, kiss rehearse at SIR. Uh -huh. He heard that Bill was coming down. And so on a break, he says to Dave and Eddie and the rest of the guys, hey, Bill's coming down. And again, I don't know. I don't know if the demo had been played for Bill yet. I, that's unclear whether they've heard. He's heard the demo yet, heard the songs. But he says he's coming down. Get up on the, so you guys get up there and play some of your songs. And so this was Gene's thinking that he would get them and they would he would be able to see what happened in Los Angeles, basically on stage here in New York. He'd see it. Alcoin would see it. They'd see the Van Halen magic and that it would be a, it would be a slam dunk that they get signed. Go up on stage uh, at SIR, and uh, Eddie has talked about the fact that you know he's with he's trying to get a guitar sound through 
bassist rig is totally unfamiliar to him. The pedals are different. The guitar is different. You can imagine they're trying to adjust Peter's drums so that Alice can play on them. And so they play a few songs for Al Coin. What Mike Anthony told me and what I've also heard from um, reading interviews with Eddie is that Al Coin said, hey, yeah, yeah, I like it, I like it, and left. Of course, he didn't like it, as you guys probably have gathered. He was not that impressed with Van Halen. Um, they were nervous by all accounts. Dave didn't sing very well. Interestingly enough, I believe Gene has even said that Eddie didn't play particularly well that day, that Eddie just was you know, struggling with his sound and just didn't feel comfortable. And so the next, then on the way out the door, Gene and uh, Alcoin talk, and Alcoin says, bring him to my office tomorrow morning, or something like that, or they'll, they should come to my office tomorrow morning. And here's Bill O'Coin talking to the great Michael Butler from his rock and or rule geek show, talking about how he turned down Van Halen. The one I keep getting hammered about is turning down Van Halen. Yeah, yeah that was one of my questions. And they, and they desperately wanted to be with us. Huh. It wasn't like I was trying to catch them. They really wanted to be with us. So you never know. So what in, what happened with the Van Halen? Now that you meant bring up the topic, did did you just not like the van, or just no? No, it's not that I didn't like the guys per se. I, I I learned a big lesson there. I flew them to New York instead of going and seeing them in their own element with their own fans, and that was kind of taking them out of their own uh, comfortable environment, put them in a, in a in a rehearsal studio, and to see what it was like. Well. Everyone was nervous, you know. David didn't sing that well. I, I wasn't I wasn't sure that there was a song that we could really get behind. And uh, you know, although Eddie was good, you know, it was the band O Total. So I said no. Of course, they remind me every time I see them. And uh, but a couple of years later, I had lunch with uh, Ted Templeman, and I uh -huh. said, you know, you know, you did you did Van Halen, and I and I I turned them down. He said, well, I did too. I said, what do you mean? You signed them. He said, no, no, no. I wanted to sign Eddie. And then when the oh. band when the band said, no, no, we're a band, I wanted to get rid of Dave and put Sammy Hagar in wow. from the beginning because I knew that, that, that Dave didn't have that good a voice. And I said, holy cow. You know, and then, of course, you know that, that it, it was Ted Templeman who did the covers of those great songs and did those great arrangements that broke them. Oh, really? Uh, you so know, Ted Templeman did the arrangements on the cover tunes. He did everything. Yeah, he you did everything. Huh, you know, yeah, that. he produced them and did the arrangements. Yeah, so well, so he knew that they didn't have a song either. He said, "I know they didn't have a song. Okay. That's why we did the cover tunes." <laughs> so I felt a little better, but not that much better because I still would have liked to have managed them. <laughs> right. Well, that cover that they do of that Linda Ronstadt tune is probably written by somebody else. You're no good. One of the great covers of all time. So credit to yeah, Ted Templeman. It is, and 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 Ted Templeman is a phenomenal producer. I couldn't have gotten anyone better. And of course, he had all the power he well, at Warner, so that made it even stronger for them. They they actually wound up in a great position because of Ted, without a doubt. Um, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, I, I I love what they've done and everything, and uh, and obviously feel bad that I didn't sign them. So, well, there are some there are these rumors now about when. Bill, what's uh, Gene Simmons? Supposedly, you know, he claims he discovered Van Halen. So this is around the same time, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, it is. And uh, uh, no, well, actually, a lot of people did. Uh, the reason wasn't just Gene. A few people told me about them from the West Coast. That's why I flew them to New York. But that was that was my big mistake. I should have flown. I should have flown to the West Coast and seen them at the Starwood Club where they always played. And you know, I that you know, you learn you learn your lessons as you go along. You know, I I just I guess 
I, my ego was uh, a little out of, out of place then, and I, uh, and I decided, well, I'll just fly him to New York and see what happens. And, and that, that, that was a big lesson to learn, believe me. Well, it might have been cheaper for only one ticket compared well, to four. It, well, it didn't have anything to do with being cheaper. It was like, uh, I'll bring them to me as opposed to me going to them, and I really should have gone to them. There's also a rumor that the reason Gene wanted to man or work with them is because they wanted Eddie Van Halen as to take Ace Frehley's place. No, no, not true. No, no okay, no. A, a rock and roll myth. You're the biggest band in the world. Your sound is a huge part of that sound is Ace Frehley. Right. I mean, the majority of it to me was was Ace Frehley's guitar tone and everything. It was a huge part. And you're going to completely alter the entire sound of the entire band when you're the biggest band in the world. Why? <laughs> it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But like, think yeah. about how that would have affected the power balance within Kiss, because you would have had a two against two vote locked in. The, the Van Halen brothers never like. For example, there were there were times that Ace and Pete voted differently. The Van Halen brothers never would have voted differently. You know what I'm that saying? That is true. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so Gene and Paul would have had a... Uh, I mean, it could have been have where <laughs> Paul Stanley left the band in 1980 and the other three stayed together, you know? Could have been Sammy Hagar later wound up joining Kiss Hagar, so... Well, you know, I mean, Ace, would come, <laughs> Ace would come to the recording sessions... <laughs> Ace would come to the recording sessions with two or three songs. Eddie Van Halen would have been coming with twenty songs, and yeah, uh, yeah I, I wonder mean, it, how Paul would have dealt with that. Th- there's just no; it just doesn't seem even remotely plausible to me. But interesting, interesting, interesting. Here's Van Halen covering Kiss's Firehouse. <laughs>
So they've never actually said it, but do you guys think that Kiss, the idea was Kiss were considering having their own record label? Well, do you think that's what was going on here? I think that it was the beginning of an idea. Remember, this is also within a year they'd be talking about Kiss World, the traveling amusement park. So to have a record label seem like something that would be very easy to do. The only problem is, is it would have had to been an offshoot of Casablanca. And I think that this is just speculation on my point, but I could see where they were looking at already dumping Casablanca at this point. I mean, at they're thinking we are we are this big why should we stay with this company there's other offers out there because they were going to be super kiss you know it was that kind of arrogance and and hubris possibly does that make sense yeah well you know paul in his book you know according to him gene brought the demo to him and bill coin and then they listened intently and later spoke without gene and agreed to pass on getting involved with them not because they weren't great. This is what Paul. This is a quote from Paul's book. Not because they weren't great. Not because they didn't have enormous potential. We passed to protect Kiss, which needed our daily focus. And then he says, Gene's wandering eye was clearly a potential risk to all we had accomplished and all we were working toward. Now, to me, that just seems like a rationalization because in reality, what they did when they passed on Van Halen was they completely blew it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if they had started their own label with Van Halen, it would have been huge. Obviously, it was a huge missed opportunity, and here you have Paul trying to rationalize that away with this stuff about Gene's wandering eye, and then they had to focus on Kiss and all of that. So which is because it? Because Paul wanted to sign them, or it's a bad thing to sign bands. So well, it's we have Bill Coin turned it down. Right. And I don't know, you know, who knows what the different involvements were with Gene and Paul here. Uh, Paul wants to to Paul seems to be implying that he had much more control over the situation than Gene did. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, and plus, if, the, if it was the band starting their own label, uh, you would think Ace and Peter would have been involved too. But, uh, but I don't know. It just seems like Paul is really... I mean, do you guys think that? He's just rationalizing because they blew it. Here's what I think. I think that Gene was driving this train 100%. I think even the whole recounting of the story where Paul tells... Uh, Niels Lozauer, the photographer for his book, that Lita and I went to the Star Wars with Gene to see Van Halen. I mean, it's just this whole, like, you know, wants to put himself at sort of front and center of this whole this whole episode. So I, I, I think, I, I don't think Al Coyne, in my estimation, probably needed Paul to tell him anything. I think if you listen to the Van Halen 1976 demo, and those demos are up on YouTube, people should listen to them, uh-huh. and you compare them, compare Running with the Devil, Gene's version, Van Halen's version, with the Ted Templeman Van Halen version. I mean, there's no comparison the tempo is different the power of the song i mean i like the songs on the gene simmons demo because i'm a van halen fan and i think there's some some interesting stuff on there Uh but as two pieces of if you were presented with two different records i mean come on there's not even they're not even in the same galaxy right and so i i you know in listening to the demo i think part of this should be be put down to the fact that let's face it gene's production of van halen did not capture van halen very well right well what's really different about run with the devil is the vocals and so like you said earlier i think ted templeman really coached david lee roth and got a much better performance out of him on his demos um than gene simmons did 
One of the things I talk about in the book, and again, I, I want to leave some stuff out so people will buy the book and pick up the book and read it or get it from the library or whatever. But one of the things that I talk about is when I interviewed and had a long conversation with Ted Temple and we talked for a long time, he had qualms about David Lee Roth as a vocalist as well. And so what he said is, okay, right, I, I know how to work with this, right? He had been working with Van Morrison, uh, Captain Beefheart, Montrose, go to the line. He's, you know, he had a huge track record of success at right. Warner Brothers. He's like, you know, okay, I can work with this. I've worked with, you know, worked with guys who might have some limitations as vocalists. And he kind of coached Roth, say, you know, those screams, the ex exclamations, the, all the little noises. He, he, he figured out how to get a Roth vocal style on tape that made David Lee Roth a great rock singer. Okay, and I give, give David Lee Roth the credit. He did the performance. I'm not trying to minimize Roth, but I'm saying every musician who can have a producer who can really help coax that great performance out of him knows that this is, and this is what this is what um, Ted did that Gene didn't do. Gene did not get that great performance. And in addition, I want to add this as well. Eddie Van Halen hated overdubbing. Hated it. He said to Gene, can't I just not overdub? And Gene basically said, no. You have to overdub. You know, Ted Templeman looks at Eddie Van Halen and goes, fuck, this guy doesn't need to overdub at all. Right? right. One take. That's the way it was. <laughs> it, was it was literally with the guitars. It was one, maybe two takes live. That was it. Now, again, they did add some overdubs on the 1978 Van Halen album. As you guys know, there's a few overdubs there. But, right, Ted said, this guy's a fucking genius. Right? We don't need to, we don't need to, like, have him. And he's like, this isn't some guitarist from the Doobie Brothers or something who's, like, you know, a, a, a limited technician. Right, who needs to maybe go back and multi-track only to work on this? He's like, this guy's a one-take. Let's go. He's just he's a you know he's John Coltrane. That's what uh -huh. that's what Eddie, that's what Ted Templeman told me. He's like, why would you you know just get the the performance on tape? And so Gene missed that. And so I think part of the issue is that when you listen to the demo and imagine that they didn't play very well in uh, New York, you can kind of understand why Alcoin would have passed, especially if you're comparing it to Piper, which sounded so radio ready. I mean, I, I've never heard the Piper, Piper demos, but I have to imagine they were similar to what ended up on those albums. Wow. Right, and since uh, Van Halen was going to end up being so revolutionary, if you're looking at it in context of 76, Piper seemed much more commercially viable and everything, obviously, I'm sure, as well. And also, if you look at the 10 songs that Gene Simmons produced, only two of them would end up on the first Van Halen album. And there's there's no Ain't Talking About Love, there's no Jamie's Crying, there's no You Really Got Me, you know, none of that was there either. And Gene has said, let's take Gene at his word, that he listened to all their songs. Now, some of those songs had not been written yet. Ain't Talking About Love and Jamie's Crying had not been written yet. But um, if you listen to the 25-song Ted Templeman demo, the one that's done after the Gene Simmons demo, there are, are songs that I think are better than the ones that ended up on the 1976 demo. And so you can imagine, Gene doesn't know Van Halen very well. Let's face it, he heard them one night and then takes them to the studio the next day. Whereas yeah. Templeman had months to sit down and sort of go over their material, listen to them, see them live at the Whiskey, see them live at the Starwood. You know, and Gene just wants to do this quick. He's like, I'm gonna sign this band, bring him into the studio. And so he doesn't know Eddie Van Halen very well. He doesn't know David Lee Roth very well. Whereas Templeman was able to say, ah, do that again, Dave. You know, what did you do last night at the Whiskey? Oh yeah, that scream. Let's do that, and that type of stuff ends up on tape. And so, you know, to me, it's it's like even the tempo. I would emphasize: listen to the tempo of "Running with the Devil." Templeman calibrated it down to it sort of became the swaggering power walk. Yeah, I have a song march. The, the tempo is totally different. I mean, that's again. I'm not trying to not tear down Gene Simmons. I'm just trying to say that Templeman 
was just did a better job in part because he had more time with them. And his track record proves he's one of the greatest rock producers of all time. Absolutely. There was always some kind of whispers every so often about David Lee Roth's dad having money. Mm-hmm. Did that ever factor into anything, or was that all just rumor or what? Yeah, let me let me talk about that because I think that's actually an important important sort of little detour to take here that might make some some sense. So when Dave was in high school in the so late '60s into the early '70s, he was in high school roughly from about '68 to '72. Roth's father was in medical school, and so. They were not, by any stretch of the imagination, wealthy at that point. But what ends up happening is Roth's father gets his degree in ophthalmology and starts doing surgeries, and he quickly develops a reputation in Los Angeles as the best eye surgeon in town. Uh-huh. So they quickly accumulate – he quickly accumulates quite a bit of money. I mean he, he just has a very, very successful practice. And so as you guys may know, the, the house that Roth lives in now in Pasadena was Roth's father's house. I mean that is a, a mansion. I'm not talking about a McMansion. I'm talking like a – uh, you know, a granite marble mansion, uh-huh. very expensive house that is purchased in 1975 or 1976. So Roth's father did have money. You know, from what I understand from talking to Michael Anthony is that, yeah, Roth's father would attempt intentionally, excuse me, uh, occasionally try to help Van Halen by, you know, calling like, he, you know, maybe he worked on someone's eyes who worked at a record label and he would get a business card. And he would call the record label and try to help, you know, and he may he, he probably fronted money to um, to Dave for equipment. He famously bought him his first PA system and things like that. But, you know, the whole idea that that Roth having money um, had anything to do with, with Van Halen's success, I mean, I think it's pretty, that's a pretty tenuous argument. I think the one thing that you can say that definitely mattered was that Roth, uh, the fact that Roth's father lived in this massive mansion, they were able to take over the basement and have the famous, um, you know, Van Halen rehearsal space in Roth's basement where they could work kind of uninterrupted for hours and hours at a time, where in the past they'd had to move from different place to different place uh-huh. and try to find places to rehearse. So having that that great workspace, you know, the best of my knowledge, Ross' father didn't, you know, he sure as hell didn't get him a record deal um, because, you know, Ross' father had plenty of money in 1975 and 76, didn't get a record deal. So, you know, that stuff is sort of, Ted Templeman and Marshall Burrell explained the story to me very, very clearly. I mean, Marshall finds out about Van Halen. He goes and sees them at the passing the Civic. He's like, fuck, these guys are great. He will eventually start, uh, he will get them into the Whiskey Go-Go where Marshall is working. Marshall is working at the newly reopened Whiskey Go-Go, which had been shuttered for a while. And as he works with them more and more closely, he decides uh, that um, he's going to hold up his end of the bargain, which was when he first met those guys, he's like, I'm going to try to get you guys a record deal. And interestingly uh-huh. enough, Marshall has told me that when he said that, this was right after the Gene Simmons encounter for Van Halen. Marshall meets them. You know, Marshall does the whole, you know, tells him he's an agent. He's, you know, he's worked with the Beach Boys. He worked with Spirit. He's worked in Hollywood for years. He says, I want to get you guys in the whiskey. And he says, you know, you guys are good. You guys should have a record deal. And uh, and basically, Eddie and Alex just looked at him and scoffed like, like, like this, this is another guy blowing smoke up our ass. And, and Marshall's like, what, what's the, like, what's your problem, basically? He doesn't understand what they, why they're so, they get all gruff about that. And then he finds out soon after that Gene had taken them to New York and they hadn't gotten a record deal. But. Marshall Burrell is the one who places the phone call to Warner Brothers and says, hey, Ted, you should come see this band Van Halen. When I talked to Ted Templeman, he told me before Marshall called me, I had never heard of Van Halen. He's like, I was busy. I was producing bands. I was not down on the strip. I didn't go to clubs. I was, you know, I didn't have time to do this stuff. He said, I had never heard of this band, but I knew Marshall. He had worked with Marshall before in the past, had met Marshall before, was a friend of his. He said, I knew Marshall. New good music, 
So I said, okay, I'm going down. And that's how that happened. Very interesting. You'll hear a lot of times David Lee Roth will say things like, oh, you know, um, you know, Ted, Ted and Mo Austin were just, you know, wanted to duck in out of the rain to come into the Starwood and they saw us. Like it was something right out of the movies. Like it was just like a, a, like a, you know, like, oh, what should we do tonight, Mo? Let's go to the Starwood and see who's playing. Oh my gosh, there's this band Van Hill and they're so great. Which, to be honest with you guys, that's been in part because things went south with Marshall eventually in the end of 1978. Dave, like Paul, let's face it, liked to write people out of the story. You know, but Marshall deserves credit for putting Ted in the place where he could see Van Halen. And I have no doubt that eventually Van Halen would have gotten a record deal, even if Marshall hadn't called Ted. But Marshall is the guy who paired Van Halen and Ted together, at least put them, put Ted in a position where he could see these guys and go, oh my God, these guys are fucking great. Well, and to be fair, I guess, um, hypothetically, if we think about what the Van Halen debut album that would have come out on Kiss Records would have been, I mean, for example, Would You Really Got Me even have been on there? Because that was really their first hit, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like would eruption have been on there because you know that was pretty much i mean obviously eruption was very important to to um just the whole phenom that became van halen so i mean that really reinvented guitar playing right so if you think about who would have produced the kiss records van halen album and what songs would have been on it it, you know probably would have been a very different album gene you think gene would have produced it i I think (laughs) I, you know, I, I, I they uh, probably would have got Eddie Kramer to do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing, Ken, because you, you may not know this, but BJ and I were were talking at one point. I said you guys should do a a, a Gene. The, the Kiss Room should have a Gene produces bands episode and go through like Keel and all these other bands. Oh that, yeah. Um, yeah, House of Lords that, that Gene produced um, mm-hmm. and talk about the the successes and failures of Gene as a producer. I mean, I'm joking, but um, about Gene being a producer, but he might have wanted to. One Hopefully knows. he would not. He would have known better. <laughs> but it wouldn't have been Ted Templeman. That's pretty much for no, sure. No, because right. Ted was a Ted was a house uh, producer for Warner Brothers. He was right. a vice president at Warner Brothers, so that yeah, it was, had to be on Warner Brothers. I think, I would think that even if it had been a Van Halen album on Kiss Records with someone else producing, it still would have been a hit, probably. But I guess you have to consider the possibility that without Ted Templeman and, you know, what they did on the, the album that he produced, maybe maybe it wouldn't have been. I doubt it, but... I think that it would have done well. I'm not sure that it would have changed the game like it did. Well, you have to... You know, I guess you have to wonder, yeah, if Eruption would have been on the record that would have been on Kiss Records in 1977 or whatever, and that could have been... That would obviously be a huge change, but... Absolutely. And here's Van Halen doing their version of Rock and Roll All Night. Shout and you just keep a shouting. Come on, 
after you've been around for a while. That's all right, I like your style. You drive a swag, we'll drive you crazy. You show me everything you got. Keep a dancing in the road that's hot. You drive us wild, we'll drive you crazy. You keep a shot, you just keep a shot in. Clap your hands. think uh we should talk about the bob ezrin story that's so funny that i just said bob ezrin on accident instead of bill of coin but it turned out there was a bob ezrin yeah I can talk <laughs> story. About yeah sure i guess that is something that would be interesting the kiss fans would be the so were they meeting with him to produce to possibly produce them no so here's the story so um you know in the book i talk about that that a number of different record labels knew about van halen uh, kim fowley knew about van halen so he was trying to get people to come to see van halen before marshall showed up on the yeah. scene in late 76 and you know, basically put the bug in Templeman's ear. There were a number of people who were trying to get labels to have an interest in Van Halen, and these and they there was not a lot of interest. When you looked at what the trend lines were in music at the time, disco, soft rock, think Linda Ronstadt, think the Eagles, that type of music, and think about the fact that punk rock, early punk rock, which would be Sex Pistols, The Damned, Dead Boys, these type of stuff that was sort of starting the Ramones, Blondie, new wave stuff. Van Halen didn't really fit with any of that. And so a lot of these record labels were like, nah, you know, we, Deep Purple's over, you know, basically. Or we already had Led Zeppelin. We don't, you know, these guys are dinosaurs. So Hernando Courtright, who, as I mentioned, was very tight with Rodney Bingenheimer at the time and had friends in the music industry, um, was also very tight with the, the, the Runaways, had a friend who was working with Ezrin. And so he brought this friend to see Van Halen. And the guy was like, wow, they're great. I really like, you know, I like this band. And, and Courtright and Bingenheimer were talking him up. And the guy went back to Ezrin. Ezrin's in Los Angeles working with Alice Cooper, 
on an Alice Cooper record. And this is late 76, early 77, around that time. The story was that Ezrin basically couldn't, just couldn't get interested. He just, they couldn't get him to come out and see Van Halen. So here's the alternate history. The uh, debut Van Halen album on Kiss Records, produced by Bob Ezrin. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I think, God, I think Ezrin, uh, assuming Ezrin wasn't going to pull an elder on these guys, I mean, I think Ezrin could have captured some amazing performances. Again, think about all the stuff he did with Cooper, with Cooper's voice, and sort of understood the different personas, and imagine what he could have, you know, if he had time to work with Roth and really think about how Roth sang, I could imagine he could he could have done some really interesting interesting stuff. But, yeah, I mean, there were... The thing, the, the thing is, you have to give credit where credit's due, in my estimation. Ted Templeman saw it. He saw it. Now, Gene might have seen it too, right? But Ted saw it. And Ted was able to make the deal happen. Ted had the track record where Ted likes it. You know, that's it, right? I mean, that's it. Ted, at Warner Brothers, Ted had the, the magic touch along with those other guys up there. So Ted had the faith in them and made it happen. Gene sort of tried to make them sound more like other 70s rock bands, I guess, whereas Ted Templeman just kind of magnified what was different about David Lee Roth and different about Eddie's playing, and, and that's what mm-hmm. was, real, I guess, most important to their success was just how different they were. They weren't like anything else. So Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I listened to Blue Oyster Cult, and I'm like, wow, you know, it's really, that was what was considered kind of heavy metal in 1977. I, I have this argument with people all the time, you know, where they'll say, Van Halen's not heavy metal. And I'm like, well, right, if you compare them to Metallica, no, they're not heavy metal. But if you consider what was considered, quote-unquote, heavy metal in 1977, Van Halen fits with that in a lot of ways, with the, with the vocalizations, with the uh, guitar playing. But what Ted saw was like, let's not do... And, Van, and, and Dave Roth, too, as well. This is for Dave, people to understand. David Lee Roth understood this early on. He's like, Look, we're not going to do like an ELP Yes-style progressive album we're not going to have long songs you know we're not going to do that black sabbath nine minute songs we're not doing that we're going to do pop songs that are flashy with heavy metal stylings with the vocals the guitar solos the the great beats all that stuff we're going to have the power and energy of heavy metal but we're going to make it sweet right we're going to make it with the vocals that are that are the harmonies the melodies you can sing and that's what um you know templeman picked up on it and Roth was the guy from early on he deserves credit for this told the Van Halen brothers hey guys if you want to keep playing backyards let's keep doing 20 minute grand funk jams <laughs> you know yeah. nobody wants to hear nobody nobody in a nightclub wants to hear that we're not we're not playing stadiums and we don't have a big fan base we can't do that stuff so let's let's write commercial songs and you know there was they they had fits and starts towards that some of their stuff is not as commercial as other stuff but Templeman three part harmony the great guitar solos, the great melodies, which Roth wrote. Let's give credit. Those are great melodies on those albums. Roth wrote those melodies. And that's how you get that um, album. But again, Ezrin, who's the other guy? The guy from A&M Records. Um, his name's escaping me, the head of A&M at the time. All these guys passed. Herb Alpert? You know, yeah. Yeah. He was like, I don't see it. Templeman saw it. Yeah. Marshall Burl gets Templeman in that club. Templeman then drags Mo Austin back the next night. And that's it. The idea that Van Halen weren't heavy metal, I mean, what became American heavy metal in the 80s was born out of the scene that they built on the Sunset Strip, and obviously no one was more influential on it than Eddie Van Halen, so yeah. so obviously you have to put them in the history of heavy metal, they're uh, incredibly important, especially American heavy metal. Well, so. and that's one of the arguments of the, of the book, right? So the, the, you know, the idea of the backyard party band saving heavy metal, what I want people to understand is that when they hit the scene in 78, 
putting aside the fact they're on Warner Brothers and they have Templeman, right? So the, right there, you might say on paper, well, you know, that's that's a pretty good backing right there. Nobody thought an album like Van Halen One was going to do anything on the charts. Sire Records was now being distributed by Warner Brothers, right? So that's that that punk new wave label. Sire is is now one of Warner Brothers' big priorities. Sex Pistols are on on Warner Brothers, yeah. and so right, disco is still hot. Um, people are still going to see you know soft rock bands in the clubs. That's the stuff that's popular. You know the idea that this this guy this band that's going to get on stage with this guy with his hairy chest who's going to be jumping off amplifiers with this guitar player who's basically you know, a reinvention of Richie Blackmore and, and Jimi Hendrix with a whole new twist to it was going to become a top 40 album and sell a million records by September. So the album goes goes platinum in September. Fuck, nobody thought that. Nobody thought that. Now, again, guys inside the band might have thought that maybe. Maybe Marshall Burrell, their manager, had confidence that was going to happen. But no observer on the on the scene thought that a hard rock or heavy would have been heavy metal band at the time was going to become that popular. Because that was the sense it was over, right? Right. Metal is for dinosaurs. Uh, it's dinosaur rock. Zeppelin, over. You know, uh, David Lee Roth basically says that he thinks all Gene was interested in was poaching Eddie Van Halen right. from the right. group, is basically right. his take on it. Which... I mean, from everything I've read, it seems like Gene Simmons tried really hard to help the band out and to, to help them get their break. And then David Lee Roth just comes at him with this bitterness that really seems unfounded if you look at everything that happened. It seems like it seems like Gene had good intentions. And also Gene claims that he had a contract with the band that he just tore up and let them go to Warner Brothers. So you would think David Lee Roth would be very thankful to Gene Simmons for everything he tried to do and for the fact that he let them out of that contract. And yeah. yet, instead, he just seems very bitter towards Gene Simmons and very, a very negative attitude towards him in the book. I'm glad you guys brought that up because I wanted to ask um, you two about this. So one of the things that I, I, you know, I talk about this briefly in the book, but I don't get into the speculation about what Gene wanted to do with Eddie and Alex in terms of Kiss, uh, partly because I found it hard to... Um, at least to, to wrap my head around the idea that in the fall of 76 that already Gene might be thinking we need to kick Ace and Peter out. Does that make sense? Or what do you guys, th- you guys know this off stuff about well, this much better than I do. I think that we need to discuss some of those demos that Gene has discussed and has claimed that he has with the Van Halen brothers. What all songs were they, BJ? Uh, it was... Got Love for Sale, which I, I guess at the time was called Have Love Will Travel, and Christine 16, and Tunnel of Love. The idea that Gene in 76, 77 would want to replace Peter and Ace with Alex and Eddie, to me, seems ridiculous. Like, no way. That's um, what I've always thought, too. I mean, I don't, I, 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 my thought is that I could possibly consider in my mind that if you looked at Van Halen, okay, and if you looked at the band, and people are, are saying to Gene, there's problems in the band, David Lee Roth isn't a good enough singer. You know, the bass player, Michael Anthony, God bless him, but he's just sort of, you know, he's just sort of a guy. You know, he's, he's a, good, a great musician, obviously, and great singer, as we know. Um, I, I could imagine someone or Gene actually saying, well, Eddie and Alex are the guys who are the real core musical talent in the band. And that's not to minimize those other guys. I love Van Halen, obviously, but I could imagine 
where maybe he was imagining he wanted to peel those guys off and do something with them. Like, okay, if I can't get a deal for Van Halen, maybe I get Eddie and Alex to become something else. They become Daddy Longlegs. And again, I have no evidence beyond what David Lee Roth has said that that's what what Gene was thinking, right? Well, 1976-77, those are the years that KISS were the, literally the biggest band in the entire world. Right. Why on earth would Gene Simmons be thinking of <laughs> changing anything about that? Uh, it would be ludicrous, really, if you think right. about it. it well, does, there's you, no way. You understand what I mean, though. I mean, like, I mean, like peel those guys off and do another band. Yeah, like right, another, right, right, yeah. But David Lee Roth uh, seemed to think that uh, he just wanted Eddie Van Halen and Kiss, which, yeah, yeah, it, which at it, at that time, it, there's no way. I don't see any way. But I mean, anyone would have seen that Eddie Van Halen was not going to just be a sideman, you know? Right, and he wasn't going anywhere without his brother either. I mean, that was the yeah. other thing too. And so, yeah, I, I always have thought that's sort of a. I, again, I don't know. I, I when you read Dave's book, and I've actually have a had access to an interview with a person in Van Halen's inner circle, which I want to leave at this point unspoken, which you guys, when people pick up the book, they'll see. There, you know, that was definitely, Dave, Dave believed that. I mean, Dave really thought, for whatever reason, Gene is trying to get these guys or the band away from me. One of the stories that Dave tells in his book is that he shows up at the studio in, so, well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves with those demos, but basically Gene shows up in the studio, wants to bring Eddie and Alex into play on those demos, and Dave shows up. Mm-hmm. Wow. Un, unannounced. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. Let's let's talk about where Dave walks in real quick, because that's too much of a thing to just let kind of go. You know what I mean? That had to be a very tense meeting at that point, because I mean, when you read David Lee Ross book, he almost sounds like he caught his uh, husband or wife in bed with someone else. You know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about? I mean, there's there's that kind of feeling. Would you would you guys agree? Where Dave had kind of caught them. The quote from his book, he calls Gene Simmons a pirate and a carpetbagger. <laughs> and yeah, he's, uh, and he says, Simmons would look at me with horror because I was onto his game way early. <laughs> so yeah, uh, there's, that's some serious paranoia there going on. But I mean, if you, if you look at the stories, it seems like Gene Simmons loved the band with David Lee Roth and it was everyone else that was saying, get mm-hmm. rid of David Lee Roth. Mm-hmm. Everyone except Gene Simmons mm-hmm. was saying, get rid of him, you know? Uh-huh. Well, so let's think about the timeline too. So it's it's um, something like April, nineteen seventy seven. Kiss has come off the road from their tour, and Simmons has gone back to Los Angeles. That's where he writes Christine sixteen, writes Tunnel of Love, and then he calls up Eddie and Alex and says, "Hey, come down to Village Recorder Studios. I want to record these songs. You guys want to come?" And so they they show up. Eddie's guitar tech goes along, and so I don't know if Eddie's guitar tech Rudy told Dave or, or the brothers told Dave. However, you know, however it was um, related to Dave, he was obviously not happy about it and just showed up. Um, so that was must have been, yeah, that must have been like, oh. And so, you know, again, I don't know, who knows what the, I'd love to know what the real beef between those two guys are. But, you know, again, maybe Dave was just paranoid. I, I say this, that um, here's what people need to understand is that when people saw Van Halen in 1976, 1977, even after they had the Warner Brothers deal, there was a real sense that Roth's vocal ability didn't match up with Eddie in, in the terms of thinking about the great 1970s rock band. So think about Deep Purple, right? You have Ian Gillen. Uh-huh. Think about um, Led Zeppelin. You have Robert Plant, right? Roth is sort of in that mold, long-haired, open-chested shirt, frontman. Roth as a vocalist 
again, for all of his skills and everything that, that on those, especially on those albums with um, and working with Templeman, they just crafted a vocal identity for him that's just, I think, uh, incredible. Uh-huh. But as a live singer, I mean, let's face it, David Lee Roth is not Ian Gillen. He is not Robert Plant. So I think Roth understood that when people considered Van Halen as a hard rock slash heavy metal band, Roth as a vocalist was just not, he just wasn't the match for Eddie, at least at that point and on paper in that way. And so I think there's that was that fear, right, that, that people were going to say, oh, we'll get rid of you, Dave, and we'll get this other band. Now, whether Gene was thinking that, again, I, I kind of agree with BJ. I don't think that Gene was, you know, again, why would Gene care anyway? He's torn up the contract, right? So why would he want to fire Dave or, or get rid of Dave? Because like we've already established, I think fairly clearly, there's no way that Eddie and Alex were going to go to Kiss, number one, or number two, even that at that time in early 1977, I that they would... I mean, when Kiss is the biggest band in the world, he's going to fire. He's going to fire Ace and Peter. Also, for perspective, when we're talking about Gene recording these demos with Eddie and Alex, there's no Van Halen album yet. They're not famous. Right. They're just right. local musicians. Right. right. So, yeah, I to me, it's just David Lee Roth being paranoid. Right. But you can understand why he was paranoid, since he probably heard all the time, and he heard from Bill Coyne, according to him, you know, get rid of the singer, get a new singer. He probably right. heard that all the time, right. so you can understand why he was paranoid. Right. And but BJ I and think I, the paranoid was misdirected towards Gene Simmons, probably. Right. And Ken, uh, BJ and I have talked about this before, is that, you know, especially if we know that Al Coyne was like, well, I'm signing Piper. Uh-huh. You know, Piper's a great band. And when you listen to, you know, Billy Squire as a vocalist is just leaps and bounds ahead of David Lee Roth. If you compare the 77... Uh, excuse me, the 1976 Van Halen demo produced by Gene Simmons as compared to Piper. I mean, there's no there's no comparison. So I can imagine how that would have really Roth would have been worried that maybe someone was trying to get the quote unquote the band away from him. Maybe, in other words, to conspire to get rid of him. And I think, again, I, I think I agree. It was Gene probably wasn't thinking that. Why would he? Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate real quick. At this point, the strain of working with Ace and Pete was going up and down right bj wouldn't you say that that's true who knows I, there's been so much rewriting of that history you know right. for example the the idea that the solo albums happened to keep kiss together even though we know that the solo albums were a part of their record contract in 76 with casablanca right you know what i mean so the the idea that there was this horrible tension with ace and peter in 76 77 i don't buy it i think there's been a lot of rewriting of history to imply that but at the I don't at the time when they were the biggest band in the world and you know Ace was was starting to sing songs and write more songs and I just don't believe that there was that kind of tension at that point. Well, I can just imagine a parallel universe where Kiss with the Van Halen brothers. Uh, wow, that would have been very strange. <laughs> Wait a second, Kiss hold on, sound... hold on, hold on, Sorry. BJ. I've got it. I've got the joke. That would All have right. been quite a <laughs> that would have been quite a mammoth band. that one might be too inside anyway (laughs) so Greg take us into the studio what was it like when the Van Halen boys were doing the demos with Gene Simmons again around April 1977 Gene comes off the road he's got these three songs he calls up Eddie and Alex, and they go into Village Recorder Studios again. And that's, as we've mentioned, that's when Dave shows up unannounced. One of the interesting things that I um, learned 
from getting material from a former member of the band's inner circle um, who was there that day with those guys is that um, when the, the um, Christine 16 solo was done, it's basically the exact same solo that Ace did on the record. Uh -huh. um, in fact, this person actually in the book you guys can see actually commented that, my God, when I listened back to the album, when Love Gum came out, I thought, fuck, is that Eddie? That sounds exactly, it sounds exactly like Eddie, what Eddie did. So that's left to people's imaginations. I have no idea whether that's actually accurate that Eddie's guitar solo actually appeared on the Love Gun album, but it was you know, more likely that Ace heard the demo and said, oh, I'll just copy this exactly. Excellent. These days, many KISS fans would claim that there's no way Ace Frehley could ever play an Eddie Van Halen guitar solo because he was so inept. <laughs> So well, that would be a revelation if Ace could actually do a, a play an Eddie, Eddie Van Halen guitar solo. Here, here's another funny thing, which again is, is fleshed out more fully in the book, is that the back and forth that was going on when that, that, that solo was being done is that Eddie was playing the solo, whatever solo he had written, and Gene kept saying, I want it simpler, I want it simpler, I want it simpler. And eventually they were able to get to this, this solo. And so to Gene's credit, from what I understand, Gene was the one who said, you know, basically wanted more of a melodic solo where Eddie maybe was doing something a little bit more flashy in there uh -huh. um, and was able to make that to make that solo fit better with the song. From right. You know, we should do a, a startling reenactment of what it was like when Dave walked into the studio. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Tonight on Rock and Roll Unsolved Mysteries, we take a look back to the 70s when Gene Simmons of the rock group KISS was caught red-handed by Van Halen's lead singer. A band on the L.A. club scene called Van Halen caught the eye of the blood-spitting, fire-breathing demon of rock, Gene Simmons of KISS. Gene Simmons tried to get Van Halen a record contract, unsuccessfully. After recording an album of demos for them, he later invited Edward Van Halen and Alex Van Halen to the recording studio to record a few demos for him. When Van Halen's lead singer David Lee Roth found out about this, it got ugly fast. And now here with a startling reenactment is what it could have sounded like when David Lee Roth met Gene Simmons on Unsolved Rock and Roll Mysteries. Eddie, actually, your playing is, is way too complicated. I'd like you to simplify this solo. It's, it's, it's very simple. It's a very simple rock and roll type song. We don't need that wheedly wheedly thing. Could you do a minor D7? Oh, God! Oh, my God. David Lee Roth, is that you? I didn't know you were coming today. This is Diamond David Lee Roth. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here, Gene Simmons? Woo! David Lee Roth, I'm so glad you're here. What in the hell is going on here? I'm sorry, David, what do you mean? Oh! Gene Simmons, you son of a bitch. I turn my back for two seconds and you grab the Van Halen brothers and drag them into this studio. Oh, yes! You're trying to steal them and you're trying to keyhole my cargo and you're trying to keyhole these guys like you're some kind of a friggin' pirate. Woo! Well, you can kiss my ass. Oh, yes! Uh, listen, David, uh, I'm not trying to steal anyone. <laughs> 
tell you what, Gene Simmons, you carpet-bagging son of a bitch. It's as simple as this. These are my boys, and I'm taking them out of here. Oh! Oh! David, I can assure you I'm not a carpet-bagger. I might be a carpet-muncher. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Gene Simmons, before this is done, bitch, I'm gonna burn, burn this whole damn thing down, bitch. Hmm, that's a good idea for a song. I should write that down. Let me see. Let me write that into my notebook. Burn, bitch. Okay. Yeah! I'll tell you what, man. You ain't no walking, talking miracle, and on the eighth day, man, you didn't do crap. <laughs> You'll think heaven's on fire. I'll tell you what. I'm not trying to steal anybody. No, we're just playing. Oh! We're just working on a song here. It's Tell you what, Mr. Tongue, why don't you take that tongue and stick it right up your... Now, David, there's no need for that. Listen, David, I respect you. Listen, guys, I'm sorry if I caused trouble. I just wanted to get this demo done. Uh! Whatever, Tongue Man. Alex, why don't we jump on out of here? And Eddie, why don't we just beat it? Later, Waldo. Some days it doesn't pay to be a rock god. <laughs> Very mature. Yeah. Anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> you carpetbagger? <laughs> yeah. Ow! Well, how he says it in his book, he says, Gene would look at me with horror, and then it says, again, horror in italics. <laughs> That's what he says in his book. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, you could also, you know, after years of working to try to get a deal, they have a record deal now. It's April 1977. They've got the Warner Brothers deal, uh -huh. you know, and I, you can imagine where Dave was like, you know, fuck, we made it this far now. God, you know, I don't want anything to happen to the band. Yeah. So. Right. Do you guys think we'll ever hear those demos? Oh, wow. Probably uh, um, to release them, Gene would probably need Eddie and Alex's permission, right? Is that the problem, you think? Yeah. It, yeah, Gene did an interview back in 2002 with Eddie Trunk where the the way I read it, and Ken, maybe you remember this interview too, where the, the implication was that Gene probably, Kiss probably could release them, but out of deference to Eddie and Alex, Gene will not do it unless they give permission to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So somebody that works for Eddie Van Halen would have to find them and leak them on YouTube in order for this to happen. Well, in terms of conspiracy theories, although I heard from a, a Kiss collector, a guy who's a pretty one of these inside guys with the bootlegs, mm -hmm. said this isn't true. But you know that that 1976 Van Halen demo, when it first leaked, sounded immaculate. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like straight off of a first generation, yeah, a master tape. Like this was not like you know, six, seven generations down the road. And that stuff had never leaked before. I mean, th th there was a little bit of stuff that had been played on the radio, running with the devil had been played on the radio by KRLQ in LA. I, I always suspected, by the way, that Gene leaked that to sort of cement his own legacy a little bit, like going, I'll just let this out because then everyone can see that I discovered Van Halen. Yeah. But then Gene could also leak these uh, fabled Alex and Eddie demos, which, I mean... Uh, many, many people, when that Kissbox set came out, that's one of the first things people were looking for to be on there. Obviously, Gene would have, you'd think he would have loved to have at least put one of those on that Kissbox set or something, but, but yeah. Well, I think he I, wanted to. I mean, I think that yeah. was, that he, he asked the Van Halen brothers, can we, can I put one of them on? And they said, or all of them on, and they said no. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm guessing 
Gene would never want to leak them now because there's always the hope down down the road right, that Eddie right, would go, right. go ahead. So yeah. Gene can repackage Love Gun again. And uh, I mean, how much is left that's not on the internet at this point besides <laughs> Christine Sixteen with Eddie Van Halen playing? It's one of the only things. Uh, the, the Van Halen brothers have, I think, almost religiously tried not to release anything archival, you know, from the band's early days. I mean, if you think about it, they've... they've I mean, wouldn't you, if you were Eddie and Alex, go, okay, the jeans, the uh, Van Halen Warner Brothers demo has leaked. There's a lot of interest in it. Let's put it out in perfect, uh, presuming they have a tape. I don't know if they do, but presume it perfect format. Yeah. You know, like Warner Brothers, I'm sure, would put it out in a heartbeat. Why not? Or well, why the, way we... they, the way they um, cannibalized it for a different kind of truth, they probably really wish none of it ever was out there. No, I'm sure they don't. And that was, that was something I'm, I know that... They had nothing to do with that appearing on the internet. Somebody who ended yeah. up with a copy of the tape in Pasadena ended up putting that out. But uh. And here's Gene Simmons' comments on the Van Halen demos from Eddie Trunk's show in 2001. The Eddie Van Halen uh, work that, you know, was going to be on the demos that were done during the Love Gun sessions. Dude, how hard did you guys fight to get that stuff in the box set? Because, I mean, fans I, were I dying, dying I, for that stuff. Yeah, I, I just reviewed the stuff again, and they're really picture-perfect sounding uh, records that are fully mixed. It's Got Love for Sale, uh, Tunnel of Love, which I recorded on my solo record in Christine 16. And excuse me, we should clarify that these are, are recordings. Not, they are not on the box set. But they are also recordings. Explain what it was that you bought basically Van Halen in without Roth, of course, to do these demos. Yeah, okay. For those of you that are just tuning in for the first time and just landed on Earth, I found a band called Van Halen. I then convinced them not to sign with a yogurt manufacturer who was about to literally own the band. Which is in the book also. And flew them to New York and produced their first demo, which included the entire first record and a lot of other tunes that wound up through the years. And couldn't convince Bill O'Coyne to sign them or the record company because Bill O'Coyne thought that they looked like Black Oak, Arkansas. And I told him he was on crack again because nobody knew who that band was. And so what if they were there? This is the next big band in America. I really believed it. I couldn't convince anybody. So that band, I, you know, I said to them, look, I've got you signed. Go back to L.A. after the tour. Um, let's see what happens. i got to go out on tour with Kiss. At the end of the tour, they got a deal with Warners. And I tore up the contract. Consider this a gift. In the meantime, the guys and I stayed in touch. And... I was in L.A., we'd just come back from uh, Japan in 1977, and I wrote new songs. And I needed a bass player, a guitar player, certainly a lead guitar player, so I called Eddie and Alex. They came down, and we recorded as a trio. The three songs were Christine 16, Tunnel of Love, and Got Love for Sale, which was originally called Have Love Will Travel. And kept those tracks, we originally recorded those tracks, and of course I had the demos. And then when the box set came out, I tried desperately through management and Warner Brothers to have them let me do it. They wouldn't. That doesn't mean it's not going to appear one day, but so far, uh, they said, we don't think it's a good idea. So eventually, you'll see the light of day. Plus, I have Mongoloid Man with Joe Perry and lots of other stuff with a lot of cool guys from other bands. This was the band saying no or the label saying no or both? Good question. Eddie and I saw each other, uh, I don't know a month or two ago on the street, and it's always very cordial. You know, he's doing great, by the way, for those of you. Yeah, I was wondering. No, he's okay. Yeah. Uh, he's fighting it, and, uh, you know, everybody should say a prayer for Eddie, but looks like he's doing okay. Good. 
Um, but in terms of who says no, you have to talk through management and record company because it would be makes everybody pissed off if you don't. So I got the word that it's no, and the sense I got it that was that it was from the record company. What songs were on the demo that you produced for Van Halen? Do you remember? The, the entire first record. Oh, it's all the tracks from the record? Every single one. In, in, as a matter of fact, a lot of the uh, ideas and arrangements were things I suggested that initially were hard to call down, including the... Uh, that thing. I basically slowed it down and said, let me show you, because they had a car horn at the end of uh, Running With The Devil, I it's think. It's the beginning. Yeah. It's except, how it opens. Except it connected. Uh, that was the end of another song. It was House Of Pain ended with the car horn, and I connected the car horn to Running With The Devil as one song. In other words, one went right into the other. Right. So the car horn slowed down. And I said, let me show you a trick I learned while we made our first record. When uh, Black Diamond, by hand, you slow the uh, 24 track. You VSO it and then by hand turn it. So they loved the you know, sort of sound effect and it wound up on the first record. So, so House of Pain was around at the time of the first record because that was, didn't show up on a record until oh, much yeah. later. That's right. So was, so was, and as a matter of fact, it was a much more rockier first album sounding version. When I finally heard House of Pain, it was uh, sort of more arranged, had more harmonies and so on. So your book just really tells the story from so many different perspectives. I mean, it sounds like you spent a lot of time doing a lot of research. It's It's almost like an autopsy report, but a good one on how Van Halen rose to become what they would eventually become it, it, it's an amazing document i appreciate that and you know that was really my goal i really wanted to explain how do we get in february 1978 this album which sounds so different than everything else that's out there it doesn't sound like boston it doesn't sound like blue oyster cult if you want to think about hard rock bands that were popular it doesn't sound like kiss um, how do we get this album and how do we get this incredible pairing of david lee roth and eddie van halen who are going to go on to become by the early 1980s, as you guys know, the, the, the two probably biggest rock stars in America in 1984. How did this happen? And that was the thing I was just committed to figuring out. So yeah, I did two, more than 200 interviews. You know, people like George Lynch, go to, musicians like, uh, go to, I could go down the list. Um, but the thing is that it was just a matter of saying, people who were around, who saw Van Halen, I wanted to hear the story, what they remember, what they saw, and what they people saw in David Lee Roth, even before he was in Van Halen. So I've, I've gone back to you know, even to their high school years and really tried to recount this rise to superstardom. Because again, remember, this is a band that was playing the Whiskey A Go-Go, which was obviously a, an important club in rock history, obviously. Uh -huh. um, but it goes from being a club band in December 1977 to blowing Black Sabbath off the stage in August 1978. Um, that didn't happen in between December and August. All that, you know, all that transformation and to become such a powerful band happened in 75, 76, 77. That's when that all, that's when they became great. You know, just like Ken Sharp's book shows about Kiss. You know, Kiss becomes that powerhouse group by working in the loft and, and playing in the Coventry and these types of things. Right. So so you talked about how Van Halen arrived at that zenith in 1984, but of course there's this famous story that Gene tells about how supposedly Eddie Van Halen came to him in like 1982 wanting to leave Van Halen and join Kiss. <laughs> have you ever, have you found anything out about that story in your research? Yes, I have a revelation. I think that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so does Eddie Van Halen. 
you know, in and all Paul serious, Stanley, I believe. <laughs> yeah, in all seriousness, I think Gene has gotten a tremendous amount of mileage out of that, and I God bless him for that. I, I think I could imagine Eddie Van Halen, who was a heavy drinker at the time, maybe showing up at a Kiss rehearsal or meeting Gene for a drink or something, and being just frustrated as hell and saying something like, "Fuck, I'd rather I'd rather join your band than have to deal with David Lee Roth anymore." Right, because of the of the tensions inside the band, and there were there were serious. You know, I wrote this article about the the photo shoot from 1980 for the Women and Children First album, and you know, one of the things I wanted to try to show in that article, which came out months before the book, was that you know th those tensions are nothing new. Even before '85, and they broke up, and there were problems inside the band, and so that's what I always took it as. It's just sort of an offhanded comment. <laughs> you know, Gene's radar goes up and goes, "Oh, right. this is perfect." <laughs> Yeah, and one version I saw Gene tell uh, Vinnie Vincent was sitting there <laughs> with them when Eddie Van Halen was saying he wanted to join the band, which is even more awkward. <laughs> well, when you think about it, I, I can, you know, you, your idea makes a lot of sense. I can really see where it'd be like, it would be great just to be able to just play guitar again, you know, even if it's hiding behind this face and just having fun, you know, it, it kind of does seem to fit. Yeah, and, and Gene was like, ooh, someday I'll be able to get a lot of press out of that <laughs> offhanded comment. Exactly. <laughs> right, I mean, Gene's like, Rolling Stone headlines will be written for the next 40 years about this. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> well, it does its job, so. It definitely does. <laughs> and Greg, this seems to be the year of Van Halen. It seems like they are returning to the concert stage. What do we know about that right now? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'd, I'd love to suggest to you guys that I had this all carefully planned out five years ago but yeah after um, kind of being in hibernation for uh, a couple of years they have returned um, the live album is out as you guys know that came out in March and now as we are in October now they've finished up the first leg of their tour it's been yeah it's a hell of a good a good run for the band and uh, it's uh, it's nice to see them back out there and still uh, still working you know they're really the last big American band that has not played the Super Bowl you know, I, I doesn't my, that seem like a natural fit at this point? It does, although I, I have continually wondered now with looking at the Super Bowl whether the powers that be who do the entertainment have finally decided that you know what we got the American the American baby boomer pretty wrapped up in football. We need to get the the young teenage girls interested, and so we get Katy Perry. You know, to get people get eyes on the Super Bowl, it would seem like a natural fit. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if that will ever ever happened i'd like to see that happen god they tom petty did it didn't they couldn't they couldn't yeah. we get van halen please and prince and mccartney but you know as big a year as it is with the van halen tour van halen finally hits the podcast big story there a big big story and uh people <laughs> shit are you laughing yeah because i meant that as a joke that we're going to talk about like this is the biggest <laughs> thing in the van halen years that we're talking about them on the podcast i, I thought you were coughing i was like is he coughing or laughing um <laughs> <laughs> I knew that you Super were like, Bowl, I don't know where to go with this. <laughs> they're not on the Super Bowl, but they are on podcasts. So yeah, the so there you, go. there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, Greg, where's the best place for people to buy your book? I urge people to can swing by VanHalenRising.com. That's all one word. And you can click on the link there to go straight to Amazon to buy it. They're also, you can buy it through the Van Halen store which is vanhalenstore.com, um, and you can pick it up that way as well. Well, we want to encourage our friends and fans to check out this excellent book, and uh, it, it's a very good read. I've always been interested in this, and uh, it's, it's, just, it's just great to finally have this information at our fingertips. I know that, to me, the first Van Halen album was a seminal album. 
definitely one of the ones that summed up hard rock and heavy metal for the 70s and the kiss connections in this are pretty cool so uh, i i feel it's definitely worth checking out yeah thanks i really appreciate that and yeah there's these people are wondering there's a whole whole chapter actually dedicated to the gene simmons paul stanley bill alcoin van halen saga so I, i definitely wanted to give Gene and the others, they're due for um, their part in the Van Halen story. And yeah, it's all in the book along with tons of other cool stuff, uh, 40 plus pictures that had never been published before. Yeah, I'd encourage people just to pick it up. And again, you interview people like Pete Angelus, Michael Anthony, Ted Templeman, and so many more. So it's definitely worth checking out. Well, Greg, we want to thank you for giving us a look back at the KISS part of those early Van Halen years, and I know we only scratched the surface. There's so many great stories in your book about the early days of Van Halen, and people need to check that out. And, of course, the name of that book is... Van Halen Rising. By Greg Renoff. So there you go, another plug for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and people people can also go check out an episode of Rock and or Roll, my podcast that I did with Greg, all about the early years of Van Halen and we played a lot of the demos that we talked about the Gene Simmons demos and the Ted Templeman demos on that episode so if you want to hear more about the early years of Van Halen and continue part two of this check out that very cool rock and or roll podcast we're considering that part two of this episode we will put the links in our show notes so thank you greg for being part of the podcast and it's it's great to finally get you on here hey appreciate it i really appreciate the opportunity thank you guys so much god bless thanks guys and that concludes our look at van halen rising with the author greg renoff and we hope that you learned something about not only Van Halen, but especially Kiss and Gene Simmons, Bill O'Coin, and all of that stuff. So there's a lot of Kiss stuff addressed in there. You know, Ken, I was at I was at work two weeks ago, and one of my coworkers brought in. He had cleaned out his garage, and he brought in a stack of old Hit Parader magazines that he had from I know, like the the mid to late '80s. Uh-huh. You know, we were, and he knows that I like hard rock, and and uh, as 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 does he. And we were looking through these and reminiscing. You know, those those are bygone days, right? I mean, you know, they we just don't have yeah. that anymore. I think partly just because the music landscape is so different. Obviously, we're not going to be getting those magazines about those bands anymore. Right. But also, I think because, you know, the technology has changed. And I think we are the closest thing, you know, offering something like this, uh, an awesome interview about uh, a Van Halen book relevant to the interests of KISS fans and, you know, well, what we do, what Kiss Room does, all of it. I, I think this is about as close as we're going to get in our age demographic to those days of Hit Parader and Circus and so on and so forth, just to enjoy these bands like that. Absolutely. We are the Kiss audio fanzine for your ears. So we want to thank you for listening today and tell a friend about us. If you know somebody that likes Kiss and they're not listening to the podcast, you have to wonder. What's uh, wrong with them? Yeah, and, you know, let let the folks know. And we want to thank you for listening. Going on our ninth year coming up here soon. We look forward to hearing what you have to say about this episode on our Facebook page, or you can write us. Listen to this bit coming up as we close the show, and it'll give you all the ways you can get in touch with us. Yeah, it's unbelievable, right? 2016, we'll start, we will be starting our 10th year. Yeah, well, we, yeah, come January, we, we will have done nine, nine years. years. That's yes. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. Tell a friend, rate us on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next episode of your podcast. Don't miss it. 
And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at kissfaq.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late great Eric Carr, and the late great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podkiss crew, thank you for listening to Podkiss, the KISS fanzine for your ears. Check out these ads from the following shows. We are proud to call them the friends of the Podkiss Network. We are one. We're a scene man. That's right, Kiss Army. We're having a rock and roll party, and you are invited. Tune into the Strange Ways Kiss Podcast and hang out with your Kiss Army brothers, Jody Havnock, Clinton Harris, and D Rock. Join us where we celebrate and discuss the gods of thunder. That's Strange Ways Kiss Podcast. You can find us on Facebook or Podomatic.com. We'll see you there. You wanted the best, you got the best. And if you want the hottest show on Monco Radio, Join us in the Kiss Room. The Kiss Room is a monthly radio broadcast celebrating the hottest band in the world. Kiss! It's your place for all things Kiss and some. For broadcast dates and all information, go to thekissroom.com. The Kiss Room broadcasts live and worldwide on Monco Radio, where music and minds meet. Podcast Rock City. What's up, everybody? This is Joe from Podcast Rock City, where every week, me and my crew will bring you the KISS news of the week. Look at us as kind of a KISS version of Meet the Press, your source for KISS news every week. We're on iTunes, Podomatic, Twitter, and Facebook. History Science Theater, the most civilized? Yeah. Oh, Oh, f- <laughs> Lee. Come on. Respectful. Just imagine Gene with like, like a, with like a washtub bass. Boom, 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 And serious. No, wait. Excuse me, Bob. You're going to come over and do my album. <laughs> Kiss Podcast on the web. History Science Theory. We bust balls because we can. Hey, this is Nick, co-host of The Pot of Thunder, the only KISS podcast that breaks down the entire KISS song catalog one track at a time. Every week we have a new song chosen at random, and we do our best to analyze it. We talk about KISS-related topics and non-KISS-related topics, all the while trying not to kill each other. If you like the sound of that, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and especially on iTunes.
Hey everybody, I'm Aaron. And I'm Chris. And we're from the Decibel Geek Podcast. And if you love this... You'll love us. That's right. Brand new episode every single Monday. You can find us on iTunes and at decibelgeek.com. And the best thing is, it's rock and roll, and it's always free. This is a really big moment. Hey, everybody. I'm Cassius, host of the Cassius Moore Show, and I just wanted to tell you guys a little bit about the podcast. My show is kind of like the melting pot where all things collide. I've got musical content, including album roundtables and playlists of all different genres, solo shows about my personal life, and interviews with anybody you can imagine. I've had Marty Friedman, plus Danko Jones, and even Brian Redband of Death Squad Studios and the Joe Rogan Experience. So if you want to check out the show, head over to thatreporterkid.com or look up Cassius Morris on iTunes. All right, Kiss Army. Since 2007, you've been getting podcast, the Kiss Audio fanzine for your ears. That's right, it's your podcast. Every month, the podcast crew, along with the Kiss Room, brings you Kiss Talk like no one else, whether it be roundtables, interviews with the band past and present, analysis, and great Kiss fun. Hi, this is Ace Frehley, and you're listening to Podkiss. Hi, this is Bruce Kulick, and you're listening to Podkiss. The Podkiss, the Kiss audio fanzine for your ears. Hello, hello, this is Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and you're listening to Cheap Talk. It's time for some Cheap Talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Their mommy's all right. Their daddies are all right. They just seem a little weird. They even got their Kiss records out. This is Ken from the Podkiss. Join me and BJ Cram as we talk about four great guys, three great chords. Cheap Trick. If you're a Kiss fan, chances are you've checked them out. So please check out our show, Cheap Talk with Trick Chat. Available for now in the Podkiss feed. Keep cheap tricking. Oh, we're great at that. I mean, I mean, that's, we are amateurs. Yeah, I make all the sex sounds with my mouth afterwards. Squish. This place oh. is nice. Right? I'm glad you wore your nice flip-flops. Stay frosty, man. Okay.